It's the Police Officers Association of Michigan podcast radio show, recorded live in our studios in Redford, Michigan. Home is a full-service labor organization formed to provide every labor-related service from negotiations, grievance processing, legal and legislative representation to Act 312 arbitrations. Hi, this is Ed Jocks on the Michigan Police Information Network. And today's subject for our podcast is considerations necessary in critical incidents. Our guest today is POAM Assistant General Counsel Douglas Goocher. Mr. Goocher has uh, been employed by the organization for 10 years. Previous to that, I think two or three years uh, in the uh, Barry County uh, Prosecuting Attorney's Office. Is that right, Doug? Two years. Two years. Well, thanks for coming. Doug uh, uh, handles all aspects of uh, labor law for POAM, but he, he has been specializing in uh, criminal representation of officers when they are charged. So, uh, Doug, thanks again for, you know, taking the time to, uh, to join us today. Um, Doug, why don't you start out by just telling us, you know, what is a critical incident? We talk about it all the time, but, you know. Well, it, what we deal with in, in critical incidents are incidents that could result in either criminal investigation or serious rules violations. Uh, examples would be a, a death in custody injuries during the course of an arrest, uh, a discharge of a weapon, those types of incidents. What should a local association do to prepare for those kinds of incidents? I know POM has its own protocol, so maybe you could touch on both of those things. But Well, from a local association, what they need to know is who to contact when such an incident occurs. Uh, POAM has a 24-hour hotline. Uh, normally, if an incident happens during the course of a uh, business hours. They're to contact their business agent, notify them of the incident, and they'll get advice from the business agent and be put in contact with an attorney uh, if that's necessary. From the local standpoint, what they need to make sure is that they know who to contact at the local level so that a union rep is available for them uh, to properly advise them of internal policies and procedures and their rights pursuant to their collective bargaining agreement so that uh, everything is followed and that there's no violation of the contract or the individual's rights when these incidents occur. And, and let me just uh, add to that that if it is after hours, I believe they, they, they dial the same number to our office. We have uh, in answering service a business agent on call and an attorney on call 24-7-365, so they'll immediately <laughs> forward the call to the, uh, to the proper people and an attorney if necessary. Well, Doug, what needs to happen at the scene of a critical incident? Well, the first thing that needs to happen is the individual that's involved in the incident needs to remain calm, uh, secure the area, evaluate the, the situation to see if, there's, if it's an ongoing situation or if the incident itself has ended. And then at that point in time, they need to immediately contact uh, both the chain of command uh, per department rules and regulations and their union representative. That's the initial thing. Well, you mentioned ongoing. So tell me what you consider to be an ongoing situation and if members uh, rights are different or or modified you know uh, during an ongoing situation an example of an ongoing situation would be if an officer is involved in a shooting there's multiple suspects and let's say that uh, some of the suspects have left the area that's an ongoing situation so you have uh, a different you would follow a different protocol in those situations than you would in a situation in which it's a single individual 
in which let's say that they've discharged their weapon and the individual uh, has been apprehended. At that point in time, that, that incident has ended. Doug, maybe you can uh, elaborate on what is an ongoing situation and if members' rights are different uh, in, in, in that uh, situation. Yeah, there's two types of incidents that we, that we deal with on these critical incidents. One is the ongoing situation, which would be, uh, as an example, multiple suspects, uh, an officer discharges his weapon, and the suspects flee the area. That situation is fluid. So while the officer may call the chain of command, uh, notify his union rep, make sure the area is secure, all those things, <coughs> that situation, the investigation is continuing. So the officer is going to have to follow a different, slightly different set of protocols than they would if the incident had ended. Let's say there was just a single suspect, uh, the officer discharges his weapon, uh, strikes the suspect, and he's taken into custody. That situation's over. Uh, that's a closed situation in which, at that point in time, he follows the, the normal protocol, securing the area, securing the prisoner, contacting his chain of command, notifying him of the shots fired, and then calling his union rep, and then, as we'll discuss later, the steps with the union rep, and then the internal investigation. In an ongoing situation, though, that officer has to disclose to the employer uh, or the command officer, whoever asks, what has transpired. Uh, he's got to give certain information, such as the number of suspects, uh, whether or not they're armed, uh, how many shots were fired, those types of things. Uh, enough information so that the investigation can continue. He, he can't withhold it. He can't, at that point in time, remain silent, so to speak. He has to provide some information. That does not mean he has <coughs> to explain the entire situation but he does have to give enough information in an evolving situation right. um, to allow the investigation to continue. You right. can't just say nothing. Well, you've got, you've got the pub public safety might be at risk, other officers' uh, safety at risk if, uh, if, he, if he doesn't provide that information. So, um, Well, inevitably, when they get back to the station or whatever, um, a written report's going to have to be made. So are written reports considered statements? They are, but usually this incident, it, when these incidents occur, <clears throat> it's not back at the department. What will happen at the scene, the, when the sergeant arrives or whatever command officer arrives on the scene, whether it's sometimes just a regular patrol officer will show up and they'll say, what happened? And at that point in time, the officer, the first inclination is to go ahead and you know, tell them everything. That's probably not the wisest thing to do at that stage. You want to give enough information so that, like I said earlier, that they know what occurred, but you don't have to, to give the entire version of events at that stage. What you want to do is make sure you have a union rep and then protect the statement that's being made. You want to understand what, for what purpose the statement you're making is going to be used for. Uh, in the case of a closed situation in which a suspect has been apprehended and taken into custody, it's advisable to get a union rep that union rep is going to be present uh, to make sure, as I said earlier, that your rights are not violated. The contract is followed. It also gives the gives you a go-between between the command structure and your, your individual that's involved in the situation. It allows uh, time for the, in the officer that's been involved in it to collect his thoughts and to find out what exactly is being asked of him. Now, now, in a situation which it's ongoing, that may not be possible. Right. You're going to have to give some information, as I said earlier. In an internal situation with the department, what you're going to want to do is 
our advice is to decline to give a voluntary statement on the internal aspect of an investigation. Maybe, I, I know you're making a point, but tell us what a voluntary statement is in your mind because well, a voluntary people have statement, different uh, definitions of that. Yeah, a voluntary statement is any statement that's, any unprotected statement that's made to anyone. That's a voluntary statement. You're not being compelled to make the statement. You ask what happened, and you answer, and you tell them. That statement can be used against you both internally and in a criminal proceeding. Now, in a criminal case, it's going to be the advice will be given on a case-by-case basis. There is no blanket advice in a criminal case. But on the internal investigation, there is the blanket advice of remaining silent until you're ordered as a condition of employment to provide the statement. The reason for that is it protects the statement theoretically from being used against you in a criminal proceeding. And in the criminal proceeding, the advice that will be given to you is going to be based upon the facts of the case and in consultation with your individual attorney. So there is no blanket, never cooperate with the police. In fact, in a number of cases, we do cooperate and give statements. But it's based upon the advice in a particular case, in a criminal case. In the internal part, though, the blanket advice is decline it, make sure that it's protected, and that way you have options uh, down the road as to how to handle these types of situations. Yeah, so it's okay to, to invoke your right to remain silent. In fact, in some ways, it's, it's absolutely necessary to trigger the Garrity protection because once you invoke your right to remain silent, you will likely be compelled by uh, a command officer or a supervisor to make that statement in lieu of discipline. Correct. You won't be disciplined for invoking your right to remain silent. Uh, you will not get disciplined for... Uh, interfering with an investigation. Now, your department may not like it, but there won't be discipline for those responses, for that response from you. Uh, they cannot make you give up your constitutional rights, and you have those protections uh, under the Constitution. Well, wait, let me make sure that's clear. I mean, they've ordered you to make a statement. and no, I'm talking about before that. I'm talking about your actions of when they come to you and say what happened, and you say, on advice of the union okay. representative or right. attorney, That's I'm going to remain to silent. Right. They can't discipline you for that. Okay. Now, once they tell you, well, I'm your sergeant, I'm ordering you to give me that statement. If you don't, uh, you're going to be disciplined, and you say, I'm not going to give you a statement. At that point in time, yeah, you can be disciplined up to and including termination. You have to provide the statement once you're compelled. Right. Michigan has a law. MCL 15.391 at SEC, uh, which protects the statements that are given by officers uh, that are compelled statements, non-voluntary statements. Those statements are not disclosable to third parties, uh, not even prosecutors. The There are exceptions written into the law that allow for written consent by the officer to provide it to the prosecutor, uh, court orders, investigative subpoenas, search warrants. But the purpose of that statement that's being provided is an internal review, not for potential criminal charges against the officer or other individuals. Right, and any information garnered from that? The statement cannot be used. Cannot be used against the officer in a criminal proceeding. The statement is not supposed to be used. Okay. Yes. What if, what if a prosecutor... Um, wants that information to proceed against the criminal in, you know, against the perpetrator in a criminal case. Well, he views something that may trigger some action or, or, or maybe some sort of a violation on the, on, on the part of the officer. It's a problem. Yeah. Uh, the way the law is structured is 
the report or statement is not supposed to be provided to a third party, including the prosecutor. You have that situation where if a suspect has been apprehended and there's some question about the conduct or what occurred during the course of the apprehension of that suspect, uh, the officer, and he protects his statement, the officer's statement is not supposed to be provided to the prosecutor at all. If the statement is provided to the prosecutor, let's say it's just for charges for the bad guy, theoretically, the statement, it, anything they derive from that statement to use against the officer would be barred. But they're really not supposed to get it. So our, our officers come into a, a situation in which they have to decide, especially if they've invoked the right to remain silent initially, uh, if an individual is charged with a felony within 14 days of being charged with a felony, they have a right to a preliminary exam, at which point in time probable cause has to be presented. There's the a officer, dilemma coming for the officer. Correct. Here. The officer may be compelled to or may be asked to testify, at which point in time he's got to either waive his constitutional protections against self-incrimination or potential self-incrimination in this case, Uh and testify, which thereby pierces the protection of the Garrity-protected statement initially, or refusing to testify absent use immunity and run the risk of the suspect not being charged. So it is a dilemma. It can be – the prosecutor could make it easier uh, by seeking Giving use immunity yeah, okay. from the judge. The judge can give use immunity at the request of the prosecutor. Does but that happen often or no? Rarely. Yeah. Rarely. You know, uh, Doug, who should decide about making statements? I mean, is that is that you know, does POM make that decision? Does a local guy on the scene make the decision? Does the individual involved in the critical incident make the decision? Well, all I can do, and and all POM can do, is advise an individual of his rights. Um, the individual then makes a decision on what's best uh, for that particular individual. There's no agenda on the part of the union or the the representative that goes and talks to the individual. It's simply up to the individual, plain and simple. I mean, we have a responsibility to give advice based on what we know, what what's going on at the scene. But, um, yeah, but our advice is really limited to these are your rights. Right. This is a potential ramification. Okay. You may want to be concerned with this or that, or I don't think you have anything to worry about, but this is still a consideration. And ultimately, the individual makes the decision. You know, a lot of times I can tell when you get to the scene and you're talking to the guy, he wants reassurances that nothing's going to happen, and I can't make that reassurance to him. All I can tell him is this is your rights, these are your options, and this is what he, he may ask, what would you do or you know, what, what's been done in the past, and I'll tell him what's been done or what I would do, but ultimately it's up to him. Yeah. And I can't change the facts of the case. All I can do is advise an individual of his rights. The, the actions are the actions. I mean, we deal with what we get. Right. And, um, and and I'm sure, you know, being an attorney for as long as you have, you've had uh, clients not take your advice before. But, uh, you know, you still have to support them, and we as an organization will support whatever decision they make. That is true. Yeah. Doug, um, should critical incident protocol and or Garrity a protocol be procedural within a department or contractual? Well, both. In a perfect world, it would be both. 
You want to have protocols for the local so that they know when a critical incident occurs, this is what I should do. You need to know who you're, whether it's a steward or a vice president or the president itself, who to contact, and they need to know who to contact at POAM when the incident occurs. It would be great if in your collective bargaining agreement that you spell out certain procedures, such as when a statement will be provided when these types of incidents occur. We have some contracts that allow for 48 hours before an officer has to provide a statement. Uh, that allows time for him to, to decompress from the situation yes. and clear his thoughts. Uh, there's also situations, uh, well, there's also contracts which address situations in which uh, they will contact the union rep, even though it's an individual's right and they have to invoke their right. Some contracts provide that a union rep will be present during the all stages of these types of investigations. If you can get that in a collective bargaining agreement, that's great. That's just added protection. If you don't have it in a collective bargaining agreement, it doesn't affect anybody's rights. They still have these rights. It's just nice to have them in a collective bargaining agreement. Right. You know, um, Doug, you, as you well know, we represent uh, the majority of command officers uh, in Michigan. And I know uh, our, our general counsel, Frank Guido, and, and our president, Jim Tiganelli, I think at least once or twice a year attend a, a staff and command school at Eastern Michigan University. And a big part of their topic is educating command officers about Garrity. Because I would say that most of our command officers, if not all of them, uh, want to see the officers offered that protection, but they also have responsibilities to find out what happened as well and conduct an investigation. So... Can you give us some advice for command officers on, on what their role should be and, and what they should uh, be looking at? Well, from a command from a command point of view, the, what they should first the what they should first know is what kind of investigation are they conducting? Are they conducting a criminal investigation? Are they con- conducting an internal investigation? Right. Because the two you shouldn't do one individual should not do both, and if you clearly understand what it is, what type of investigation you are conducting, it makes things go a whole lot smoother for both the officer that's being investigated and the command officer in the department uh, down the road. If the command officer uh, is doing a criminal investigation, he's not going to, to have to deal with the Garrity situation. He's not going to want to see the Garrity reports. Right. And in fact, what he should do, I would think, uh, initially is garner all witness statements, non-protected statements video evidence he may never need to get he may not even need to get a a statement from the officer and in those cases uh going down this road of garrity and all that only complicates matters you know because if the officer if it's a criminal investigation the officer can just decline the statement on advice of counsel remain silent and the situation uh, takes care of itself if you're doing an internal investigation your goal there is to find out if there's policies and procedures that have been violated and for training purposes down the road to see how your protocols within the department worked under these situations. In that situation, the command officer, it really shouldn't matter to the command officer if the officer invokes his right to remain silent. The officer, the command officer then just will simply order him as a condition of employment, provide a statement. What he's focusing on is internal policies and procedures. So that statement can be used for any of those purposes. So it really, the Garrity situation takes care of itself there also. It just doesn't matter. Yeah. The only situation in which what we see where this becomes a problem is where the command officer doesn't have a clear mandate as to what type of investigation he's doing. And he wants to cover both bases because he's not sure how this is going to come out. That creates a problem. Right. 
You know, uh, before we went, we came in to do this podcast, our president, Jim Tiganelli, wanted to remind our members and command officers as well, you know, that this is, you know, uh, this is a 21st uh, century interpretation of Garrity uh, that for many years, and Jim, I think by a lot of people would be considered an old-timer. I don't consider him an old-timer, but he, he spent a lot of uh, years, uh, you know, in Fraser as a public safety officer and many, you know, decades representing police officers in the state. But he wanted to remind each and every one of the officers in Michigan that it is the 21st century, that um, it's not just your own department that's going to be looking at statements or videos and everything else. You may have this, the most supportive chief and, and the most supportive command staff in uh, a very supportive community. But if something happens out there, uh, there may be other agencies that are going to be looking at the incident, whether it be federal people, the county prosecutor, or other people. And that, you know, this notion of, hey, you know, I get along with everybody in my department. I, you know, this thing will wash itself out. You know, just go ahead and, you know, make a statement and, and not be prepared and all that other stuff is just not very logical in today's world. No, it's not. And if you invoke your right... On an internal investigation, if you invoke your right to remain silent, you're compelled as a condition of employment to provide that statement, and you do. And let's say that the Michigan State Police or the FBI come in to do a subsequent investigation. You can always release that statement to them, or you can give a statement to them. What you can't do is take away a voluntary statement from them you can't do that. They're going to get that. Right. So your options are better if you, you protect yourself up front. It gives you options down the road. If things start going south in the course of an investigation and now you're concerned about how public pressure or other political factors are factoring into an investigation, it's better than to, it's better to have options. And one of the options that you can have and that you can protect yourself with is protecting your statement. And you know what? We talked about, you know, being compelled under threat of discipline to make a statement. I think we forgot to mention that that must be by your employer, not by an outside agency. Yeah, if an outside agency is doing the investigation, unless they're acting as agents of your employer, and that has to be clearly, uh, that has to be made clear by the command structure within your department, usually in a written order. But if, it, if it's an outside agency, that's normally a criminal investigation, and at that point in time, you have all rights of a criminal suspect, not your internal procedures with Garrity and, and other Weingarten and those types of things. I know, Doug, that uh, we're going we're gonna to wrap up this segment here in a minute, but I also know that uh, you've uh, talked with Frank and with, uh, with, with Tiganelli about possibly uh, you know, being available to some of our, our groups here to have you know, uh, more of a discussion about this. I know we're we're going up to uh, Lapeer County uh, in a couple of weeks, but uh, anyway, so I, I want to let our members know that, uh, you know, this information is on the website on POEM.net, all this information about Garrity, about compulsion, about uh, uh, our written report statements, all, all the stuff that we talked about is available on the website. But uh, I know, Doug, that there is a possibility that uh, we may be going out and talking with some of our groups about this as well, too, and to contact you if, if it's something that they're interested in. I think Jim Tiganelli is who you contact if they're interested in that. And that's going to be uh, sometime in the spring. It's just going to be a few uh, meetings that we're going to set up here in, I believe, southeast Michigan. Right. But it is something that departments have asked about. Uh, there's been a lot of publicity with police involved 
incidents and officers are concerned about these procedures. So we're going to try to address them here shortly. Yeah. Well, thanks for all the information today, Doug. You know, POAM is very, very committed to, to, to providing information that officers need. Again, a lot of information is on the website, including this podcast. So uh, we appreciate uh, all that you've done for our members and, and police officers across the state. And uh, thanks for spending some time with us today. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another edition of the POAM podcast radio show. I want to remind you that each and every month you can find every single podcast online on Apple iTunes. Just search for POAM. They're also available for download or for live listen on our website. Visit us at POAM.net. Get on our newsletter and send us all of your comments and suggestions for future shows.